Did you know that A Cry in the Moon's Light is now a novel? The beautiful lady in the carriage will learn that only love can defeat evil, but is it love or danger that cries out to her in the deceitful light of the moon? Pick up your copy today at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or wherever books are sold. And don't forget to pick up your copy of Father Daniel's Compendium of the Undead, the ultimate must-have companion art book, also available on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or wherever books are sold. Welcome to this special episode of A Cry in the Moon's Light. I'm your host, Alan McGill, bringing you another behind-the-scenes type of show as we take a short break from the audio drama format to have discussions with other creatives. On this episode, author and professional book reviewer Anthony Avina and I talk about everything from his career as an author, as well as his review of A Cry in the Moon's Light and Father Daniel's Compendium of the Undead. We also reveal some of this year's plans involving a short novella centered around the love story between Seth and Milady, called Red Door. Let me just start out, I guess, with this. You and I have never actually met before. We've never talked. No, no. You know, we exchanged a few emails, uh, mostly about this. And you had actually done a review for uh, both books that came out. And I had reached out to you because I had seen on your podcast that you had done a review, which I didn't expect. And thank you very much for that, because I didn't expect you to put it there either. And I don't think that we asked uh, you to do that. I think we just sent them out to to get reviews, anybody that was willing to do that. And so I really appreciate that. And of course, as a fellow podcaster, I thought it might be a good idea to collaborate on something. And so that's why, you know, I asked you to do this with me today. But I wanted folks out there to know that, you know, we don't know each other and I didn't, your review was your own. It wasn't influenced by me or anything like that. Oh, no, no, not at all. I, I'm a book reviewer by trade. I came across your book through an email and was just, like you said, they're just throwing it out there to anyone who was interested. And I read your book's description. I was really fascinated with it and decided to add it to my growing list of books to be read. And uh, when I read it, I just was really, really impressed. So that's why I put the review out there. And this is definitely our first interaction on the phone, for sure. And we've only exchanged a handful of emails. So, yeah, this is I'm looking forward to this. I'm, I'm used to being the one who asks the questions and not the other way around. So I'm looking forward to this. Well, I really appreciate the kind words that you put out there. And that was really nice of you to do that. Ed Bajek is the guy that I hired that does author services. So as an independent author, you know, which is what I am, I just decided to do that for a variety of different reasons. But I hired Ed to help really market the book and get it out there and, you know, and navigate some of the things that I had no idea about, like NetGalley and just a few of the other places that you want to start getting your, you know, your book into certain lists and groups and stuff. So, and part yeah, of that. Yeah. For him is, is also doing an email campaign to reviewers to get people to put those reviews out there and glad you enjoyed it. You know, that the most important thing to me, really, I, I want people to, to buy it, not to regret buying it. Nothing worse than getting a book that you think, eh, you know, it becomes a paperweight because you really didn't enjoy it. Oh, yeah, yeah, of course. I mean, I, I really did enjoy it personally. And the way I approach my work as a book reviewer is I like to find the audience that this book would resonate with and write to them because I, I do think that most authors and most books will resonate with someone out there and so like you said you want someone to buy your book not and not regret it and that's why i write the reviews i do because i think that 
this book really will speak to a very specific audience. I, I wanted to get the word out on that because it's a, a great read. And so is your, your compendium as well. Oh, thanks. Thanks. Yeah, that was, uh, that was a lot of fun to do, actually. Yeah, yeah, it was really cool to see. It's a, it's a good glimpse into your writing process and creating of the, the mythology and everything. Yeah, that took a little, little, little doing. I, I didn't really start out that way with, uh, with Cry. Cry was a short story that I wrote right. 20 years ago. It originally kind of just came out as being a sort of a take on Little Red Riding Hood was where it started. So it was sort of that kind of thought process. And really, I think just didn't become anything like Little Red Riding Hood. I think the most that you get out of it is her red cape and the fact that she's yeah. a, a woman, a young, beautiful woman, and she's going to see her grandmother. But that's really about right. the extent of it, other than the wolves. I guess the wolves are in there too. But just a spoiler alert for everybody, if they haven't listened to the story on the podcast, Grandma doesn't turn into a wolf. I mean, I definitely see the influence. And it's always interesting to see where a story that you wrote so long ago can evolve into and grow. So I, I definitely see that influence. I, I see the gothic horror elements to it. It was just so inviting and a really great take on history meets goth horror meets fairy tales all in one. That's what I liked about it was the genre mashup of it. Oh, thanks. You know, it's funny because I had a hard time describing it. Sometimes I have a hard time describing it to people when they ask or, or settling on one genre. I usually bill it as a horror romance because it, yeah. it seems to fit that sort of those areas, but it's just got a little bit more to it. And then, well, just some of the other stuff that I did with it, fairy tales and folklore and those sort of things, that actually has a lot more to do with me just having fun with sort of Easter eggs because I, yeah. I enjoy finding Easter eggs when I watch TV or when I read a book or whatever it is, you know, somebody puts something in there. And if you're familiar with pop culture or history and, and you go, oh, that's what that reference means. And oh, yeah. I like doing that personally as a, as a fan of things. So I just had fun doing that. Well, the good, the good thing is it, it starts conversation, gets the reader thinking, because there's a lot of things, like you said, that you go in there and people go, oh, yeah, I remember that. Or, oh, that's really interesting. But there's also little moments where you'll, you'll put something in there and then you'll go, I've never heard of that. I'd really like to look that up. And people start to read about it and learn more about it, like kind of how he included the Hessian soldiers in it. I got to look that up and learn a more, little bit more about their history and their use in the American Revolution. That was really interesting to read. That was now that part was new. The Hessians' addition to them coming in didn't happen until 2019. Right. I wanted to put a podcast out. I wanted to do something with a podcast uh, as a narrator. And so I thought, you know, I have Cry sitting here. I could do this and I could do it now. I could get it done and I could get it out. And so that was originally what my thought was. You know, my thought was, well, I'll just do the narration myself and I'll put it out as an audiobook. And I knew podcasting a little bit, so I knew I could do it as a podcast. So I just thought it was more interesting. And then I developed Colonel Volker. And of course, when I started narrating the podcast, I had more fun narrating him than anybody else. Yeah, I remember you mentioning that in our interview on my website, that he was a character you would love to talk to you if you ever could. I, I did. Yeah, that's right. And I just saw him as more complicated. Other people that have read it liked Volker. They liked his sinisterness, the fact that there was a darkness to him. but it was a little bit more complicated than that, that you're never quite sure whether he's on your side or not. Yeah. He's doing what he believes is right, but is that the right thing? It's sort of that thing. So I had more fun writing for him. And then when I plugged him in and the other Hessians, and when I did the voice acting for it, I had more fun with him. My accent probably isn't the best. You know, I'm not a professional actor, but right. you know, the idea was just to give 
just to give people enough of a tone difference or an accent of some kind so you knew it was a different character. That's really all I was trying to achieve. And so he was he was more fun. Yeah. So when I did that, I, I kind of plugged him in and then wrote him up. And then he actually has evolved. And even in the sequel, he has a much, much bigger role, much more interesting role. And there's more to his backstory. But, you know, as you were saying about the history and stuff too, I thought, because Hessian, Hessian soldier in the Americas is supposed to be a headless horseman. You know, there's that part of it. And I thought, well, that was kind right, of interesting. Of and then I just thought, well, I, I could make that a part of this legend. And it sort of was an Easter egg for me kind of thing. Oh, that's that's really cool. I, I always enjoy seeing those Easter eggs. And, and like I said, it's a great conversation. So I'm glad to hear that Chrono Volker will be a part of the next sequel. Because that's what I was interested in hearing about was you left it to where there's a room for more books in the future. And I wanted to see like what characters you would want to see more, evolve more or, or readers to really get more into. So that's really cool to hear about him. That was sort of the, almost the basis of the compendium. You know, I, I really like artwork. I always have. Yeah. I just thought it would be really interesting to visualize some of these characters. And as I was developing the world, right. I wanted to bring more of that. So I set out to, to find, you know, artists and I got seven of them and then plug them in. And because I, I didn't really start doing the compendium until I think I, I think I really started in March of 2021 is when I really started on it. I had actually already written the sequel to cry before that. I'd really finished it. And it's actually a lot bigger. It's about 160,000 words right now. I don't know if that's where I'll land, but that's where it's at. So it's, it's really big and it's, it's a war, a war with the undead. And so I wanted to bring that out in the compendium and show people some of these characters and tease out, you know, what is coming. If you get the compendium, you'll know which characters make it and which ones don't, sort of. But Volker has a much, uh, much bigger run. It's a much more fun right. role. It was so fun to write for him. And then the Witch King, which is my main villain, he was just so much fun to write for too as a, as a, as an antagonist. So he's really the big baddie in the, in the sequel. Yeah. I'm really looking forward to seeing that. I'm glad to hear it's going to be such a, a more, a meteor novel to say uh the witch king definitely even just from the artwork alone in the convenium definitely has a menacing presence so it's going to be really great to see you dive more into that as a character yeah and i think if you're able to pick up on it you know the witch king actually comes back uh circles back into the first book in a way you know the other thing too i can announce probably the first time i guess would be here i finished a novella called the red door so it's a cry in the moonlight red door, and it is a short, really longer than a short story. So it's more of a novella because it's about forty thousand words. Right. It is this the love story between Seth and our heroine from the first book. It takes place at that time, right before the events really start to occur in Cry in the first one. And so it's just a shorter version, but true to the other books, it's it has horror in it because there is a werewolf, and you know there's the attack villagers getting killed and and so it, it's a little bit more towards the castle parliament and what sort of happens there but it's about them as a much younger version of themselves and the three main characters william seth and then our heroine it's how they fall in love and what happens and those sort of things and then there's hints about the witch king in that too so it's a little bit everything but the the other interesting uh news as well is i'm going to be able to put that out as a podcast this year i'm hoping to do it by spring you know hopefully by the end of april early may so this is the first time i'm announcing that so people that have downloaded the podcast and the followers that are there because i I get uh, quite a few followers on the podcast which i'm really excited about and i know they're hanging in there with me because they they want more episodes so i can tell them now that there's at least seven chapters uh, seven more episodes that'll be coming out 
over the summer um, I'll be releasing them one by one for Red Door so it gives a little bit more of the backstory between those three basic characters and there's a little bit more werewolf and terror and things like that. Well that's incredible I'm really glad to, to hear that I'm honored to be the first to know that uh, I'm really looking forward to that I, I was really interested in that because I, I do like seeing romance included in stories like this I think it gives a little bit more depth and um, humanity to the characters. So I'm really interested to see their younger years and how that love story really first got started and the three of them together and how it all played out and led to everything. And I think readers are to love getting the chance to dive more into those characters' backstories and how the Witch King comes up in that is going to be really interesting to see. That's great to hear. Yeah, it's really subtle in that he just sort of mentioned uh, in a way yeah and but it's it's really revolves around those three you know william seth and then milady our heroine and and actually her name gets revealed in red door just as it's revealed in the compendium too i didn't i didn't put her name her true name in uh, the first book right I kept that just as milady as, as her title but she is named in red door and she is in the compendium too for anybody that uh, just wants to know what her real name is Oh, that's great. Yeah, I I loved that you kind of kept it uh, hidden like that for now. I think it gets readers more interested in wanting to know more. And uh, when you leave people wanting, you know, more from that, they're more eager to jump into the sequels and the novellas like that. So that's really great to see that it's going to be such a focus on that. You know, and it's funny because in the, even in the sequel, I don't really name her in the sequel until about chapter 10. Oh, okay, cool. I waited a long time, but I, I just did it because it just didn't fit anywhere yet for me, um, just because right. of the story, the way it was unfolding. Right. You know, I can tell people as a sort of a spoiler that Seth makes a return in the second book in a way, so he is not excluded. He is still a part of that. And actually, he'll be a part of the whole world all the way through. You know, that's going to be a little more interesting. And then the last book, which I don't have written yet, but I do have the the basic outline for that, is going to be more centralized. I expanded the world in the sequel, and I'm going to shrink it in the third book. It's going to have more of a, a smaller setting. Oh, sweet. That sounds great. And um, I'm glad to hear about Seth. I, 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 I had a feeling, but I wasn't quite sure yet because I, I was a, such a heartbreaking yet a glimmer of hope kind of ending with their story. So I'm, I'm glad to hear he'll make a return in some sort uh, for the future. Yeah, he does. So try not to give a spoiler to the folks that maybe didn't get to the end of, of it yet, but yeah, of course he does come back, comes back in a very significant way. Um, she becomes much more, you know, in the first book I tried to write her as being demure and somewhat shy and just sweet, you know, the kind of woman that, you know, you'd, you'd see almost a Ilsa Lund type character from Casablanca. That's right. not who I had in mind, but that, you know, that description is uh, sort of the same, um, but strong. But in the second book, she really becomes more of a leader and a warrior, takes on much different tasks than she did in the, in the first one. Oh, that's great. I'm glad to see that kind of evolution for her as a character. Because, I mean, like I said, I, I saw hints of that, but, you know, I, I'm glad to see it's kind of like, showing how the events of that first book really impacted her and set her on the path that she was on at, towards the end of the book. Yeah, I can say this is a spoiler. William does not make a uh, he does not make a return for the uh, for the second books. But in Red Door he plays a very significant role and that's where I actually got to explore him a little bit more too the evolution as to how he actually starts to hate the two of them. You know where that starts and that 
it's not a true love triangle, but it sort of is, and his jealousy and insecurities and those sort of things that come out. And they really come out in Red Door. Yeah, it's, it's, it's always interesting to see because, you know, there are some times where these love triangles will form, not willingly, but by the person kind of like William, who will take on that kind of obsession. And it'll drive the events like that uh, that happened in the book. And I won't spoil anything, of course, but I'm glad to see because he was such a presence in that first book that we'll get to see more of him and what kind of drove him towards the path he was on. I'm really excited to put Red Door out. Um, I actually just had Emily do the cover and she has come back with the first run. I'm so excited about the cover. It's so beautiful. She did such a nice job capturing, you know, really what that story is about. And, you know, just, I, I can, you know, sort of give this up a little, it's not really a spoiler, but, you know, Red Door is a play on the flower, uh, the red uh, and black rose type flower that is, it's on the cover of the first book. I, I noticed that. Yeah. Oh, that's great. Yeah, and it plays a significant role, and that poisonous flower covers the gates of the cemetery, uh, the cemetery in, in that's behind the abandoned church. And so we go back to that, and we go back to that era, and that's how they met, and it's how they find the abandoned church for the first time. And, and then we go into Marcel a little bit, and so we, we we revisit some of the places, but it's a, it's shrunk. It's you know, it's not quite as right. big a world. But it was just so much fun. And then I believe if I am able to, to get it done correctly, I'll have a, a new piece of music as well for the opening of that for Red Door. Plays a, their Music is a you know, big influence in my life uh, generally. Anyway, I can't play an instrument to save myself, but I love music. So Yeah, neither can I. Don't worry. <laughs> but I love it. And, you know, when I had Joe do the, the original score, I really wanted to have something that, that I could claim just to be for Crying the Moonlight for the series. And Joe did that. And then, of course, he did all 10 songs. And, you know, we put out the album, uh, the soundtrack for the show. And, you know, he's going to do another piece uh, because there's a dream sequence that figures with a woman playing a violin that is walking through an abandoned village. And, and it's a haunting piece. So I'm looking for something like that from Joe. And I'm excited to see what he comes up with. And, you know, we're going to put that into the show as well. So I, I think Red Door is going to be really exciting to listen to. I'm happy to be able to get back to doing the recording for it. I found an audio engineer that can put that together because, you know, podcasts, as you know, having your own show, the editing process is the worst part. I understand. Trust me. The cover I can't wait to see is uh, the first cover, which is so beautiful. Music, like, like you said, music has always inspired me too. kind of always liked when I'm writing, I always have music on. I like to think about how the music kind of would impact the scene kind of thing. So it's really great to see how much work and detail you put into the creative process from that standpoint as well. Kind of almost gives it a, almost a cinematic quality to it in a way so that when you're listening, it's kind of like old radio shows. It really gives the listener kind of a, a visual image in their minds when they're listening to it of how the scenes are playing out, how things look in their minds. You know, that was just something that sort of evolved too when I started to do the, when I thought, well, I'll do the audiobook narration. That's when I decide, well, I think I need to have some sound effects. And so I purchased all the sound effects and I plugged those in. And then when I contacted Joe and I had Joe do the music and I wanted to own the music, I, I didn't want to worry about copyright or, or anything like that. And I also wanted it to be exclusive. Uh, one of the things I like is, you know, when you hear those certain notes that Joe put in there for Cry, and you can hear it in almost every song, because I had him do it and put the same notes in every single song at some point, you right. know it's a cry in the moon's light. You know, and that was the idea. I was watching uh, Westworld, actually, when I was talking to Joe about doing the soundtrack. And oh, okay. I remember listening, you know, to the Westworld 
opening. And I really love that opening soundtrack that for the show on HBO. And then I, as I was yeah. watching the show, there was a slow scene where it required a different tempo and not quite as loud and, you know, of course, different from the opening. But the opening music was in that. And that's when I said to Joe, yeah. I, I need you to ha- I need you to put this in just about every song somewhere, you know, give me some of these notes. So it's, so people can recognize it as being part of this world. That's why I did it. And then so it's a huge hook, you know, I mean, it's, I think it, most really memorable storylines have that kind of music that everyone, as soon as they hear it, it, it brings that whole story back to them. You know, you think about the star Wars opening theme or the game of Thrones, the opening scene, uh, that music, once you hear it, you can't, not think about that story. yeah that's right so i i think that's so great because when i hear your music on your podcast i know that's what i'm listening yeah to. yeah that, that's and that's what i was going for and and of course you know i went a little crazy in the head because i i would say to him well that it was so fabulous and then i said well how about doing what, what would that sound like in guitar and you know i i just couldn't help myself and i kept buying more music as you know from you know being a self-published author yourself everything costs and trying to put this together yeah for me, I just wanted it to be interesting because when I listen to audiobooks and there's no sound effects and there's no music to it, I, it just does not hold my attention long enough. My goal with that was, uh, just like you said a moment ago, was I just want you to, when you're listening to that podcast and listening to the story, only thing you're lacking is the visualization that I can't deliver to you. But I gave you everything else. But your imagination yeah. can do it. You know, from there, I can just help you um, with your imagination and do it that way. I mean, everything you did was perfect for that. I mean, I, I was able to to picture this these scenes playing out. I mean, especially you know that final big moment in the book, and I won't give anything away. But, On the beach, you know, the big moment with yeah, I I could see that playing out perfectly, and it's uh, that's why I, when I'm in my reviews, I always call it the cinematic quality because. And it's like if you go inside your mind and, and the scene is playing out on a movie projector screen, what would it look like? And I think for you as an author, you really delivered that perfectly. Uh, I could see it playing. It was so captivating to witness. And I think the music and the, the artwork that accompanied the, the written book, I mean, that all added to that to to really enhance the story oh thanks so much well i'm so excited about red door because red door is going to be the complete package too i'm going to have the podcast the audio version out um the only difference is i am going to put that in a premium site so people are going to have to buy it just because i can't afford to put it out for free like i did the first one i wish i could but i'm probably going to give them a a taste and give them at least a chapter to kind of listen to and see if they want to buy the rest because that's fair to me um you know if you like you like you know the opening and you say hey i want to I want to support this and support the rest because really when, when they buy the books or they support that podcast, it's just going to go to me being able to do more projects because oh, yeah. it just goes right back into it. So that's what I really need. I mean, this is, this is part of your, your work, you know, I mean, as you said, as independent authors and self-published authors, you know, we write because we love it and we love storytelling, but we also, you know, when we put a lot of work into it, you want to be able to be compensated fairly so you can keep doing that. So you can keep telling those stories. So. That makes sense. Totally. I'm just really hoping that if they buy the books, you know, if they buy the first two books, that that would fund really uh, the next season because the sequel is so big and there's so many more characters in the sequel that I do not think I can voice. Them. Right. You know, I, I did a podcast interview not too long ago and the, the host asked me, you know, how many of the characters? And I said, well, I did them all right. in the first season. And he he didn't know I did them all. He said he knew I did the bulk of them. He didn't know I did them all. And I think there was about between 15 and 20, maybe, something like that. Right. 
I had speaking lines that I did, some better than others, some just because I couldn't figure it out, you know, the right voice, you know, for the right character. So I did the best I could with it. But the sequel to it, there's so many more characters that I'm probably going to need a cast. So I'm probably going to be looking for voice actors. Yeah. But it's so much bigger. And so to be able to put that out as a, you know, as the sequel to the first one, I'm going to need those those extra funds probably to pay actors or at least to pay for the audio engineering portion of it. So well, that's great to hear. I mean, your your story resonated so much, not just with me, but with so many readers. A lot of my readers really enjoyed that review. So I think that Patreon eventually will be a good thing. And I think charging for your podcast as well. Uh, I've noticed that this trend in modern day with Patreon and, you know, other sites like Patreon, uh, people get excited to be a part of the process. You know, they, they want that. It's almost like an exclusivity kind of thing. They want to feel like not only they're contributing, but that they get to be a part of something as it's being made. And I think that people will be drawn to that if you put that out there, especially the, this podcast that you're going to be uh, charging for. It's going to feel like that they own a piece of it almost. And that'll help you to develop because I think the, the voice actors will be great to really bring this new story to life. Yeah, I, I really I think the sequel is going to require that. But let me let me ask you, because we've talked about crying the compendium a little bit. And I want to talk about you. How many books have you written? Because you've written quite a few. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I, I've written several short stories. So many. I can't even count the number of short stories. But novel-wise, I've probably self-published about eight books total and one book of poetry. It's, it's funny because I'm the kind of author who I don't stick to just one genre. I, I, just, I go where the story takes me. So, you know, I, my first few stories have been generally horror. But my last couple of novels before Identity were actually kind of YA paranormal romances. Okay. So I, I kind of, like I said, I go where the stories take me as they come. And Identity definitely was my most adult thriller kind of novel. So my career has definitely evolved over time as far as the kind of stories I tell and the length of each book and the process as a whole. Now, you're in Identity, Nathan Hawk is your detective, right? Yes. That's yes. your main character. Was, yeah. Was he in, in any of your other books as a character, or is this his first appearance? This is his first appearance. This was the first book in a series that I, it was not going to be related to any of my more paranormal or supernatural stories. I wanted this to be a straight up, um, as a mixture of horror, serial killer kind of stuff meets uh, old school noir settings. You know, the old like 1930s noir detective stories. Mm-hmm. Uh, that you read, that's the kind of direction I wanted him as a character to go, even though the story is more modern day. kind of wanted to bring back that sense of that noir um, mystery setting. Yeah, I like that. Almost like a, a Sam Spade-ish kind of setting-wise, I guess, is more what I'm thinking. Yeah, yeah. Noir kind of thing. Yeah. That's very cool. Yeah, my, my, uh, my late grandparents, uh, my grandfather especially, was really a big fan of that kind of stuff, uh, the old noir mysteries kind of thing. And I wanted to write something for them. And that's where the story originally began was to, like a dedication to them. And so I really got into that mind space of, you know, what, what would a modern day noir look like to us? And so that's where Nathan Hawk came in. He's a private eye. He, and it's not something you really see as much in modern day. It's mostly just straight up police detectives. But what would it look like if, you know, a modern day mobster kind of took control of a city and he was kind of forced on the outside as a, a murder investigation began 
So that's the kind of perspective I wanted to take with it. Well, that's very, very interesting because, you know, when I was growing up, there was a lot of private investigator shows. Magnum P.I., there was Jim Rockford, there was Mannix. And then there was that transition where it became more police detective type shows where and the private eye sort of fell away. And I always grew up really enjoying the private investigator type atmosphere, maybe more than anything else. So that's pretty cool. I'm, I'm excited to uh, to get that book and, and give it a give it a go. Thank you. Yeah, that that book is definitely holds a special place in my heart. It's it's been such a, a, a up and down journey with that because when I first published it, I was wasn't originally going to publish it myself. I actually had a publisher lined up, and we had been working together. With I'd been working with a small publisher for about two years on getting it published, and unfortunately, the about the month before it was supposed to be published by them, the pandemic hit and their company suffered because of it. And so they had to go out of business. So that's why I ended up publishing it myself was because it's been so long working on this book. I didn't want it to just sit there. So I I, I published it. I know exactly what you mean. Yeah, yeah. And I, I'm still working on this year, really pushing to to market it more because I'm actually developing not only a sequel to the book, but several short stories related to some of the characters that were introduced in the first book to kind of give more backstory and, and to kind of tease the feature of some characters that can make a, not just a comeback, but a really big splash on the scene. So is, is Nathan Hawke going to be a, a reoccurring character? Yes. Similar to like maybe an Alex Cross, Alex Cross kind of? Yes. Kind of yes. Thing? He's, there's a, a trilogy of books I have in mind for him to start with uh, that are actually center around a central villain, to say, uh, a central criminal that kind of plagues him for a few books. But I definitely have plans beyond that to see him kind of, kind of like, like you said, an Alex Cross kind of thing. I really, I really like the idea of a villain uh, plaguing him. That sounds so, so interesting. Yeah. The, one of the things I like to play with is villains that you wouldn't expect. You know, I think that there's, especially when you look at the horror genre, serial killer wise, there's a very distinct kind of killer that people come to expect a, a kind of a, a lumbering, awkward man who no one would give the time of day, an outsider kind of thing. But, you know, I always like to play with the idea of, you know, what would a killer who everyone loved look like? The, the celebrity that is beloved by millions had a huge dark secret and was far more menacing than the person you wouldn't give the time of day. So that's where this the idea for my villain came from, for identity. And I won't give away too many spoilers for the book, but her story isn't quite as final as the first novel makes it out to be. So I have, I have plans for her, yeah. That's very cool. Well, it almost sounds, in a way, like BTK. You know, somebody that you, know, you didn't expect. Oh, yeah. I, I'm, you know, those, those kind of stories, you know. I, I like including characters like that because I think people are far scarier than the, the paranormal, than the supernatural, personally. And like you said, guys like BTK or Ted Bundy, they walk around every day and, you know, they seem like really charming people or really nice guys. And you don't know that there's just this villainy, this this evil hiding behind those eyes that you never would have suspected but as soon as they're caught it's funny those eyes that you never really suspected they change suddenly suddenly you see that that darkness hidden behind them and i think that's what makes them so fascinating to write as a character yeah i, I think you're right on and i'm really looking forward to that and so just so we can tell you know the folks on our podcast here they can find your books on amazon is there any other places they can find them yeah i, I published most of my books through amazon uh, I have four books that are available on other publishers like Barnes and Noble and Apple Books and uh, Smashwords, Kobo, stuff like that. 
and that is identity i also have uh two novellas in a ya paranormal series called nightmare academy and then i was an evil teenager is my other book that can be found on multiple sites okay so and just so folks that are listening it's going to be anthony avina a-v-i-n-a and you can be found on twitter and instagram and youtube is there any other places folks can follow you um, I have a TikTok, but yeah, author Anthony Avina is usually where you can find me. And yeah, I'm I'm always there to engage and give updates on not just my stuff, but book reviews with authors and interviews and stuff like that. Okay, so the other thing that you and I had talked about and um, really had shared an interest with um, some of the the other reading things. Now it's funny I had read your bio and you were influenced by Dean Koontz and Stephen King. Yes, majorly. I do read Independence. I do like indie authors. Partly because I, I want to support them is part of it. I like it when creatives just do their own thing. Yeah. Instead of following some sort of... Um... Yeah, I, t- I totally agree because, you know, we were just talking about this the other day. I, I enjoy that with authors. I also enjoy that with other creatives too. So I totally agree with you on that. Yeah, I like that. So so I do that, but I, I like Stephen King. I'll read just about anything of his. Oh, yeah. I didn't become a Dark Tower guy until after every single book was out. So I I didn't follow it as they came out. Where a friend of mine who actually was a King fan, and he only reads King. He doesn't read anybody else but Stephen King. (laughs) He told me about The Gunslinger. And I had seen it for many years. I knew it was out. Didn't think it was going to be that interesting. And I saw the artwork. And my buddy's like, look, you got to read The Gunslinger. He said it's about this gunslinger that is on his way to this tower. He can't explain why. He has to find it, and that's what it's about. So I picked it up, 200 pages, easy read. And probably one of, if not my favorite book, is The Gunslinger. Oh, yeah. I've read it probably at least half a dozen times, if not more. I'll just pick it up and read it because it's just a quick read. And then I got to read the rest, and he was telling me when he was doing this, he read The Gunslinger, but then he had to wait because Drawing of the Three didn't come out. Right. Or it was a couple years. So The Gunslinger comes out in 82. Drawing of Three doesn't come out until 87. So five years later, he comes out with the sequel. And then uh, the next one, Wastelands, doesn't come out until 91. So, you know, they don't come out for years. And he was, my buddy was always bitching about that. He was like, King would, you know, wait years to come out with these things. I didn't have to do that. I was able to just jump right into them, which I don't know about you, but I think it made it easier for me to follow that because I, you know, I didn't have to wait and have to re-remember things. Well, because you're so hooked by this story that it's so hard to wait. Yes. For that next book, you know? So, yeah, I, I came in around the time that Wolves of the Collar was published. Okay. So, I was I had five good books to read, and then I was, like, eagerly waiting for six and seven, even the, the last book to come out. Yeah. Yeah, the, and, and they come out the next year. Yeah, yeah. The Song of Susanna and the Dark Tower, they come out right after. Yeah, yeah. Pretty quick. Which is your favorite in the series? Ooh, that's a tough one. Um, well, like, like you said, The Gunslinger... It's so memorable. It seems, like you said, such a simple concept. You know, a, a gunslinger, a Western kind of guy just going on this journey to, to find this man in black who did this stuff to him. But it gets so much more complicated, but yet so engaging after that. And, and what I, like I said earlier in the interview, it's the genre mashup that really drew me in this concept that horror, Western, sci fi, fantasy could all exist in one story and yet still be cohesive enough to understand and to get into that's what drew me into the story it turned from this lone western guy just going after his adversary to you know having to protect this young boy who was alone in this world to the pain that his obsession with this guy led him down this dark road on 
And then the concept of where it went from there, from other worlds under universes, that's what drew me in. I think the Dark Tower's first book was pivotal to that, you know? Yeah, an amazing, an amazing read. Now, I am going to say I'll give people a chance. I'll give you five seconds right now because I'm going to give some spoilers out to the Dark Tower. Yeah, yeah of course. We're going to talk about. So just go out now because I'm going to talk about the gunslinger and some spoilers in it. But. Yeah, yeah. You know, I don't know about you, but for me, Anthony, what I thought was the most eye-opening moment for me in The Gunslinger was when I was reading it, and it just read like a, a Western, a typical Western, until he gets to the town, uh, which I can't remember the name of the town. I think it's Tall or something like that. Yeah, I think it's Tall, yeah. When he gets there, and they're playing Hey Jude on the piano. Yes. And when I and when I read that, I'm thinking, I must have read it wrong. I read it a couple of times, and I thought, Hey Jude. <laughs> Yeah. But that's when yeah. I realized it wasn't about, it wasn't a Western. It just wasn't yeah. a Western. I mean, that, that really made it go for me. Oh, yeah. I, mean, I, I definitely agree because that moment makes you realize that this is not our world, not our story. This is a whole new concept that things from our world are being thrown into this other one. I mean, when you look at Hey Jude, when you, when you start to delve into who the gunslingers themselves were and how, again, spoilers for anyone. But uh, how they're descended from the the line of Arthur Eld, yeah. who is our ver- is their version of King Arthur, yeah. You know, and the Knights of Camelot. I mean, that those kind of little things really are kind of what hooked me t- to start with. Just the the moments like that make you realize that this is not just one short little story in one contained world. This is an entirely open universe. Yeah. And, you know, and when he went into the drawing of the three and those damn lobstrosities clipped off his fingers. Oh, my gosh. I know. I was blown away by that because I don't know about you, but one of the things I loved about the gunslinger was him using two guns. Oh, yeah. You know, and, and you know, and him firing two pistols, how accurate he was. And now all of a sudden he can't use two pistols. Yeah. Because he's got half his fingers gone on his one hand. And I thought, wow, that's it was amazing. I didn't like it. I, I got to tell you, I didn't like it at first. Yeah, yeah. But I did appreciate it later. Like, I would have liked to have had him have two pistols all the time, but just because of uh, I'm an action guy, so I would have enjoyed That's that. That's why I like the, the fourth book's uh, flashbacks, though, for when his younger years. Yes. Because it kind of brought that back a little bit, you know? The the magic of, like, when he had to use both hands. And yeah. The, the magic of how fast their hands moved as opposed to others to where they could get that, that weapon loaded and reloaded so fast. Yes. That's what kind of made them such magical heroes in a way, you know? It did, and I don't know about, like, for me, my favorite book is Wizard and Glass, the fourth one that you just mentioned. Yes. That's my favorite book. I, I could read that book over and over again, too. Because uh, it, it's almost a standalone. Oh, it's, a, it's such a good, tragic love story and action story all in one. Yeah. Uh, him and Susanna, their backstory. Yes. That's so captivating. It, it does kind of remind me a lot of your book as well with uh, Seth and Milady. Just that, that kind of backstory, that history, that getting to understand who Roland was. Before he became this grizzled survivor, that's what was so interesting to see. Yeah, I loved it. That was my favorite book, Wizard and Glass. I think I like that one better than The Gunslinger in a way. But The Gunslinger is probably, you know, the two of them just seesaw back and forth. It probably just depends on my mood. Yeah. Really. Because they're just both so good. What, what, what always draws me to this series, too, is, it, like you said, you've read a lot of his books. There are a good majority of his books connected to this dark tower series yeah that's what always interested me about it too because that's kind of influenced how i go about my writing is not all of my books but a lot of my books i like to see is there a natural way to connect this series to this other series kind of thing Mm -hmm. and so when i you know when i first read the dark tower it was after i had read the stand and after i'd read uh him and peter straub's talisman and black house 
those three books came first for me. And, you know, of course, I was a huge fan of the talisman, that that story of, you know, the hero's journey for this kid trying to save his mother kind of thing. Introduction of the territories and twinners and all this stuff. And to realize that that was part of a larger universe, that's what drew me into the Dark Tower. To realize that those stories weren't self-contained, but were just facets of an expanding universe that he was creating. That's what was so compelling to me. Yeah, it's a, it's really amazing if you think about it. It's so unusual and amazing. Yeah, I can't think of any other author that's ever done anything like that. The only people I've ever known to do that are companies like DC or Marvel Comics yes. with their multiverse thing. Yeah, but that's an entire company. That's not just one person. No, it's amazing, and I'm with you. I I like finding those little Easter eggs in different stories. You know, like you said, the stand just being so connected to this, and then all the other ones that he has to it. You know, yes. I mean, there's just so many of his. Now I did it the other way. Like I read the Dark Tower series first, and then my buddy started telling me about the other stories and how they connected, and I went. Oh, yeah. and then I started paying attention. Then I started to find them. Like the Regulators, Hearts in Atlantis. Hearts in Atlantis, yes, probably, maybe yes. more so. Desperation. Desperation, yes. And just really fascinating that he plugged those in. And then the story doesn't even be that great for me. If he mentions the Dark Tower, I figure out the connection. I get interested in it. You know, I mean, it's, as weird as that might sound, I just, I may not be into the, the particular yeah. book he's right, he has written, but the minute it, it sort of circles back to the Dark Tower, Salem's Lot, you know, for example. It's just amazing to me when it connects back. Oh, yeah, especially, again, spoilers, but even the seventh book in the series, the the big final book, towards the end of the book, there's this one random scene where they come across this cabin towards the tower, and uh, they meet this the character who ends up being kind of an it, Pennywise-like creature. But instead of fear, he's using laughter to kind of kill them Mm -hmm. kind of thing. And that's such a minor moment in the overall story. But you still, you look at it and go, oh my gosh, a Pennywise creature ended up in the Dark Tower. Yeah. I mean, you, you read that and you go, wow, like just little things like that or the stand, Randall Flagg is such a pivotal and important villain right? in his book. And to see him end up being the man in black, or at least a facet of him, that's so compelling. I mean, it draws you in as a reader. It is. And you know what's so interesting to me as a fan, too, is the fact that he's called something different, but it's the same guy. Yeah. It's the same character. He's got a different name, but it's the same evil entity or, you know, like you said, uh, some sort of variation of him. Yeah. But it's really the same the same one, sort of. Yeah. Know, I'm not even describing it well, but, but generally that's the idea. And it, I just, that is so fascinating. And I was, you know, I don't know, maybe you know this. I don't know if if he intended to do this or if he just had fun as he was writing other stories and plugged them in. Yeah. I don't know. I'm not sure if, I think the very first book, I don't think he intended that because he wrote that when he was in college, I think, and then picked it up years later and polished it off and then published it. But I think as the time went on, he started to see how it could connect to everything. And especially because the book itself is such a genre mashup, it could fit so many different books of his that there's the possibilities are endless. I, even today, I'm always looking to see, okay, did he start to include this in his Dark Tower series or is this a one-off kind of thing? Mm-hmm. Like, I think he, he published a series recently called Wendy's Button Box that I'm not, I haven't read yet, but it might include the Man in Black. So, or, or mentions of the Low Men in Yellow Coats, yeah. anything really. Yeah. The, right. I mean, even like the, the fantasy horror creatures he creates, like the can toy, you, you hear a phrase out of that and you're like drawn in, like, what are these? things you know the way he describes their the 
the human suits that they wear to conceal themselves. Yes. Uh, it creates a very chilling image and yet you're still drawn in. Yeah, it's pretty it's pretty uh, amazing really. How do you think the Dark Tower kind of has influenced you or impacted you in a way? Well, you know, I it's funny because I I pin I sort of pin myself in a little with Cry because I made it the south of France in a certain time period. Right. Yeah, it's fantasy and it's horror, but it's not as fantasy I, the lines aren't as blurred for me as they are for the Dark Tower. I mean, he right. can do whatever he wants with the Dark Tower because there, there's almost no rules. You know, he, he's created a right. world where there's no real viable rules that he has to follow. So, but I didn't do that with Cry. I, I didn't, you know, and I did that on purpose. I didn't want to make it so fantastical that it became weird. Right. You know, the Dark Tower is fabulous and can never be duplicated. Yeah. You know, I just wanted it to be more grounded, so I wanted it to be that. And I was actually really reluctant to bring in other creatures, even though I ultimately decided I was going to do that. So I have this undead army, and then I have all these different creatures. There's a full bestiary in the compendium, so folks can get right. an idea of what I'm talking about. But but I did want to build a, a more expansive world. And so King's way and the way the Tark Tower did it influenced me that way. And then Sort of like you said, I didn't want to copy what he was doing in any way, but I wanted to tell the backstory a little bit. I, I didn't, when I write things, I just write to where I think it fits the story from what I'm doing. Yeah. And when I think I have told the story the right way to my mind, to what I'm trying to do, then I finish the story. You know, I don't try and plug things in. I want it to be natural. You know, I want it to, to fit. I don't want it to feel like it's forced in some way. You know, like probably would have been nicer to be a, a bigger book. It was, I think it would wound up being 70, about 70,000 words. It's only 200 pages too, so it's not, not a heavy lift right. as far as a read goes. That just felt like a natural way to end the story. You know, where I started it, where I ended it. Now, I thought about going back and, and inserting chapters, you know, making it a bigger because I actually have another cover design for it. You know, I thought about doing a special edition, but I just can't bring myself to to monkey with any of the chapters that are there. I just think they fit, they work like they should. The story ends. So, but I wanted to tell that backstory, so that's why I did Red Door and, and I really only wanted Red Door to be about 15,000 words. I had no intention on making it 40,000, but it just grew and and the story developed. And so right. that's sort of my wizard and glass kind of thing is that and so his, you know, yeah. the way he wrote and the way he put things in perspective like that, it, it was a big influence in how I think about writing. Uh, the other thing, and I think it was on, I think I saw it on your blog, because I think you had it as a quote from him, where he said, don't worry about, write the story, don't worry, something about, write the story, but don't worry about making it perfect. Write it first and then make it perfect later. Yes, that yes, right? yes, that, that sounds exactly right. And I totally agree with that. Because, you know, yeah, me too. when you get bogged down in details as you're writing, it kind of impacts the story. And you, you just want to get the story out there because the, the editing and the little details like that will come later. Yes. Write what you, write what you know, write what you love, and then the, the little details that can be worked out at a later date. Yeah, I, I call it just hammering out the story. So for yeah. me, I just sit down and hammer out the story, and we'll just write and write and write until I think that it it's done, until I, I'm, I'm satisfied with it, which is what I did with the sequel to Cry. So, you know, I wrote, and I had gotten somewhere around 120,000 words. But I wasn't quite done, and I don't know about you, I do an outline. I, I do a, a sort of a brief outline where I sort of plot out where I want to go Yeah, yeah. with things. And I do it, you know, I do it first as a, as a, a giant uh, macro type viewpoint, and then I go down into the, the micro viewpoint per, per chapter. Right. And I don't always follow it. I mean, I, I stay pretty close to it, but I just kind of 
kind of go. It's, just, it's more of a general direction for me. And then if I think about something that I don't think is too big of a red herring, I'll plug it in and then I fix it later. You know, so I'll go back and, and worry about changing things uh, later on. And that's how I wound up with about 160,000 words for the for the sequel. Right. I like that quote that you had up from him. I had never heard that before, and I liked that. And I thought, yeah, I thought that that sounds about what I try, you know, what I try to do. And I just try and hammer out that story and worry about doing it later. Because as you said, you know, you, it's going to interfere with the story if you start getting worried about details and different things. Yeah. You need to, at least for me, I can't speak to anybody else. I don't have anybody else writes. That's how I do it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, everyone's different, but I totally agree with what you're saying. I, that's how I go about my writing too. Because, you know, I, when I first started writing, uh, I, and I'd read, you know, certain people's blogs about how you, you should write and stuff, I'd always get so worried about word count or, you know, is this chapter making sense? Is it built up enough? And then I would get so bogged down in those details that I would lose parts of the story I had wanted to tell in the first place. That's why, as I grew as an author, I realized, you know, it's time to let that stuff go and to just focus on write what you want, write out the story that you have in your mind, and then you can go back and fix anything that needs fixing. And I find that sometimes when you, when you let go of those details and you just allow yourself to write that, when you're writing, new things will come to you about, you know, maybe a direction a character's going or, oh, you know, what if they had this in their backstory? Those moments wouldn't come to you if you're so focused on those on those little details. So I think that's where the real magic comes in. For me, one of the things that made it a little bit easier was when I put the podcast out and, you know, because I gave it to my beta readers and they loved it. They thought the story was great. And then I said, well, I can't really afford to self-publish, so I'll do it as a podcast. So I do the podcast, and I start getting the comments coming in. And so if you're an independent author or just an author in general, you know how hard it is to get reviews. It's, it's I mean, you're begging your friends and family to put a review up on Amazon right. or Barnes & Noble. Yeah. But for me with the podcast, what was really helpful was I had people that were commenting on the podcast. Now, it took me about a year before I got to 100 comments on the podcast. So I had people, and I wasn't soliciting for it. They just were putting it up. And it got positive reviews. And that's when I knew. So I had a little bit better mental stability to have confidence in the story that it was worth self-publishing. Yeah, That's the harder part for, I think, probably somebody who's starting out or as an independent author, because you're not getting that feedback yeah. from people that you don't know, that you didn't solicit, you know, that are just putting something up there in reviews. Because when you put your book up and it's not getting reviews, you start thinking that, well, maybe it's not liked. Well, that's not necessarily the case. It does, that doesn't mean that the story's not good, doesn't mean that, right. but it just might not be being seen. And until you start breaking through those reviews and you're getting multiple reviews, then it becomes very difficult for, you know, it's that self-perpetuating yeah. thing. You know, the more reviews you get, the more it gets uh, put out there. But, you know, how do you get it put out there? Well, you need more reviews, you know. So it's, it's just, it's a very strange thing to try to get that uh, to happen. It is, I mean, it really is. And like like you said, with the podcast, that's very helpful to, to have that feedback coming in regularly. And I think that something that authors didn't have, you know, even 20 years ago that we have now is, you know, there's a lot of tools that allow authors to put out their podcast or even short snippets of the book in a digital space to get feedback way quicker than you would. You know, obviously the Amazon thing is very frustrating. I can tell you, even as a book reviewer, I can put out about five reviews a day and four of them will get accepted. And the fifth one will get rejected, even though it's the same exact format. And there's no rhyme or reason to it. So it is a very frustrating thing with Amazon. 
but when you have the podcast or when you have I, I published a Wattpad before, just a little a preview of a story. You get feedback right away. And that really is motivating and helpful because, you know, it, it, like I have great reviews on Goodreads and yet they won't reflect on Amazon because people can't get their reviews on there. I, I totally understand where you're coming from. Yeah, I, I think that's right. Because like you said, some people get wrapped around the axle when it comes to some of these minuscule details about this isn't right or that isn't right or this doesn't make sense or whatever it is. And I always sit back and think about it, and especially when it comes to independent authors, because they're just trying to scratch out a living. And if you're that picky and you're that hypercritical about things, you can turn people away. You can turn them off to something. And the shame of it is that there's a lot of things that are really enjoyable, but when the critics pan them, then you're actually, in a way, robbing somebody of something that might be enjoyable. So... For me, when I'm reviewing something, especially when it comes to art, I'm not hypercritical about it. If there's some things that are really terrible, maybe, but, you know, like you said, there's a lot of room for people. There's a lot of room for different for a different audience. And I don't want to have something that I say in a negative way influence or turn somebody away from something that they might really enjoy. You know, because you, you rob them of that if, if you do that. I, I I totally agree. I mean, it, it's it, here's the thing. I've always thought, you know, as for myself as an author, there's always room to improve. There's always room to grow, and I, I appreciate good criticism. But at the same time, I, and I've noticed this trend even with you know today's movies and pop culture and stuff. People get so bogged down in, like you said, those little details, without even finishing a story or without even finishing a movie, that it impacts the film's overall quote-unquote score or rating and it turns other people off from reading it when they didn't even give it a fair shot and that's that's what's frustrating so i think like you said yeah having that feedback from the podcasters who are they're they're listening for the story they're not listening for the minuscule little details that a professional critique or editor might pick up they're reading it for the story for the entertainment for what draws you in and i think that's what readers responded to that's what i responded to with your story so that's what's important i think and that's what authors should know going into it is yes have the the editor have the 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 writing flow as smoothly as possible but also don't lose sight of what your intention was to begin with which was to to write a story to entertain to tell a story yourself yeah that's right everyone should be able to enjoy what they enjoy without the the fear that they'll be judged because they enjoy it I mean, like I said, everything is so scrutinized these days. Uh, my my grandparents and my mother introduced me to the Godzilla films, for instance, and the monsters rampaging through a city kind of thing. And that's all that those movies were back in the day. And then you get the movies now, you know, Godzilla versus King Kong, for instance. People are, are criticizing it so heavily. And at the end of the day, it's two giant monsters rampaging through a city. And they're, they're focusing on so minuscule details. It's like, you go to a movie to enjoy yourself, to get lost. And if it accomplished that and you enjoyed it, that's all that should matter. You know? I mean, I mean, there are a lot of films that are so criticized these days where at the end of the day, did it entertain you? If it did, then enjoy it. Because there's room for the Oscar movies. There's room for the, the really moving, emotional films or books or shows or whatever. But there's also room for the, the those other projects that are just for entertainment. Speaking of that, did you see the Dark Tower film? Yes, I did. Now, what's your take on that? Uh, it's it's a back and forth. I I was really interested with the concept of continuing the story instead of having a direct adaption, just because the way the seventh book ended, you know, you knowing having read it, it's so open ended. You want that sense of what was the next part of his journey, and I actually 
like Idris Elba a lot. I think he's a great actor. And, you know, I think the gunslinger could be one of those characters, kind of like a, a Batman or a James Bond, that really the actor looks shouldn't play as important a role. But I do think that the story itself in spots was a little rushed, kind of mashing up the, the plot lines of several books at once could have been the wrong way to go. I could have seen like a show, an HBO style kind of narrative playing out much better to over a long period of time. I like yeah. it. I like Idris Elba. He's uh, one of my favorite actors. I think he's fantastic. Actually, the whole cast, if you think about it, was was really good. The problem was mashing the story and trying to put it together. You know, I did read that it's a new story. It's It wasn't meant to be a retelling or a, a direct yeah. adaptation, which I think for me as a fan of the series, I was a mistake to me. I remember my buddy and I had a conversation about this and he said, well, there's no way. How could you do that? I mean, just take the drawing of the three, how big that book is. He goes, you, you could do a movie just about that. Yeah. So, well, you could, but you think about the MCU. I mean, the MCU is so is so vast and so big. It took them how long did it take them? Over ten years to do all the films that they did, and, and oh yeah, the different characters and different storylines to bring them all into really, if you think about it, to Infinity Wars and Endgame. And they could have done that with the Dark Tower. They still could. I would actually like to see Idris come back. Um, yeah, unfortunate part, he's already played it. But since King has removed all the lines and broken all the rules with this whole fantasy thing, you could do it and it wouldn't matter. Yeah. And the shame of it is the gunslinger was so good, I think would have been better served just doing one singular movie on the gunslinger yeah. and doing that. And then they could have they could have done the other ones. Because if you think about Eddie Dean and Odetta, you know, and characters that you miss out on that provide yeah. such a rich quality to the whole thing and then of course when you get to you know wizard and glass oh, yeah. and, and you know you get to cuthbert and you know which really some people say is eddie i think condensing it i think that's where the hollywood made a mistake you know doing that yeah i see that mistake happen a lot with on the executive level and it's real disappointing because like you said the story was there idris was there he was great and little things like you've seen it with the scene with jake in the house mm -hmm. in the house coming to life yeah. i remember reading that for the first time that was a very crucial thing because houses play a big role in all of Stephen King's books. Mm -hmm. And so to see that come to life, that was a great moment. But like you said, mashing all those scenes together into one thing, I think is what hurt it because there's that story is so rich and needs room to grow. But imagine if you took the actor in the stand and then you could bring him into the dark tower, like the MCU yeah. or Salem's lot. If they did a re, you know, if they redid Salem's lot and then you could have, Father Callahan being both. Oh, yeah. That's, and that would make that sense to people. And I'm thinking of it just in a similar way that they did with the MCU. Because, you know, you could watch Infinity Wars and Endgame without yeah. actually watching any of the rest of them and still be entertained and still not have to worry about all the backstory of every single character. Yeah. You could still do it. It still would be entertaining. But it's much richer when you got to see Captain Marvel, when you got to see the Black Panther, when you got to see all the other yeah. different Guardians of the Galaxy, all those. You got to see all those, it made it much richer. But you could do the same mm. thing that you did with MCU, you could do with The Dark Tower, because you could pull some of those other movies that actually mean something, but keep the same actors and the same characters, and then plug them into The Dark Tower series. Well, they need is a Stephen King-like cinematic universe, like you're describing. I mean, I even remember years ago when Hearts of Atlantis, the film came out with Anthony Hopkins. They included a scene about him seeing the gunslinger and low men in yellow coats going after him in the movie. And when I and when I saw that, I'm like, well, yeah, there's this is a good start to like start referencing the Dark Tower, right? Yeah. But then they never went anywhere with it after that film.
And I think that's like, that's an executive level decision that should be made because the MCU has the right format. And Stephen King's books are so rich and like just sitting there waiting to be told in a connected way that they're missing out if they don't do that. It's a real shame too. My understanding is they had some of that mapped out where they were going to do the HBO series. And, and then of course they had the comic books that come out and everything's just a little bit different, but enough. And they could have made it work, but I think they would have been further ahead sticking to, you know, movies and having that cinematic universe of the dark tower. And then they could have pulled in all these different ones. It would have been amazing. I want to thank you, Anthony, for coming on uh, my podcast. We're going to put this up as a special edition on A Cry in the Moonlight, just as a conversation with Anthony Avina, who is an author and book reviewer. And I really appreciate you coming on today. And we look forward to seeing more of your works as well. I really appreciate you having me. This was a lot of fun. We're always good to meet authors. It was, it was always great to meet authors that you connect with like this. And uh, this was a really special interview. And I'm really happy to, that we got to collaborate like this. And I can't wait to, wait to read more of your work, especially your upcoming novella. I can't wait to listen and read it. So yeah, I'll definitely be talking about that on my, my podcast when it's coming out. Awesome. Thank you so much and look forward to talking to you again sometime. Uh, sounds great. Thank you for joining me today on this special episode. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with author Anthony Avina. You can learn more about Anthony's books, reviews, and blog by following Anthony on Twitter at author A.A.Vina or his blog, authoranthonyavinablog.com. I also want to thank all of you for listening and for over 30,000 downloads. A Cry in the Moon's Light was just named to the top 10 list for fiction drama of 2021 on Podbean. The show could not have achieved that without you. Thank you and keep listening. In the not-too-distant future, I intend to release A Cry in the Moon's Light, Red Door. You won't want to miss it. Red Door will be both an audio drama right here on Podbean, as well as a short novella. And I've also opened a Patreon account. You can help become a part of the show by lending your support. Your monthly donations will fund the sound design and actors I intend to bring to the production. You can also purchase A Cry in the Moon's Light, the novel, on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or wherever books are sold. And don't forget to pick up a copy of the companion art book, Father Daniel's Compendium of the Undead. As one reviewer put it, if you love the style and atmosphere of Hugh Jackman's Van Helsing, then you're in for something bigger and more fantastical. Over a dozen artists contribute to the vast array of artwork placed in this book, from monsters to cinematic scenes to weapons. It is a treat for the eyes and provides layers of detail. There is so much in here to hint at how full-blown crazy, dark, and deadly the sequel must be. Until next time, remember... Only love defeats evil.